Welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm James Grasby, curator for the National Trust. And in this episode, I'll be taking a trip down memory lane. I'll be catching up with the team at Shaw's Corner, a property I visited in one of my first podcast episodes, as I'm keen to find out what's been happening since my last visit and how the property has been dealing with the challenge of COVID-19. But first, let's listen back to the first visit I made to Shaw's Corner in 2017. I'm headed towards the home of one of the most famous, most photographed and most quoted men in the world. A man who's hard to categorise, a a politician, a philosopher and most notably a playwright, ranked second only to Shakespeare, which is a real indicator, an index of his contribution. And here, set in the tranquil greenery of Hertfordshire, sits the old rectory where he spent the last 40 years of his life. In this episode, we'll be exploring this beautiful arts and crafts home and learning about the man and his masterpieces through the spaces, books and objects that he surrounded himself with. Walking down this lane towards Shaw's Corner, I'm not at all surprised that the Shaw's chose this place as their escape from London. It is tranquil and beautiful. It's a sensational place with a wrought iron gate with the words Shaw's Corner um, in large letters. Before moving here, Shaw was living a busy life in London. He'd established himself as one of the most celebrated writers, a man who wrote, what, 60-plus plays, 250,000 letters or something, originated a lot of them within this place. How do you do? I'm James Grasby. Hello, I'm Sue Morgan, house manager here. Do Sue, on. I'm very pleased to meet you. We've walked into the kitchen, which is a little bit of time travel. A two-colour scheme, a cream and a sort of warm, earthy brown, with a fire going, a coal-burning grate, with a great big oven and a water boiler and some hot plates on top. It was George Bernard Shaw hands-on with a pan. Oh, and first of all, stop you with the George, OK? Because he didn't call himself George Bernard Shaw, he called himself Bernard Shaw. So you'll see in his signature, the G is dropped. Obviously, this is the kitchen where his vegetarian food would have been prepped. He was a vegetarian? He was indeed a very early vegetarian. He felt as though, you know, the energy from eating live food from the garden was much more nourishing than eating dead corpses. His words. <laughs> So why did Shaw choose this house, this village in particular? Well, he'd been living in Hertfordshire, renting you know, another house and found this area particularly convenient for getting in and out of London because, of course, he still kept a flat in Theatreland in London. And why this house? Well, it really amused him that him, the renowned atheist, was going to move into the rectory. So neither of them were very you know, enamoured of the house, That's not what they were looking for, you know. They were looking for just somewhere where they could have tranquility for him to write and just, you know, generally get on with their lives, really. As you come in, perhaps you didn't see this wonderful piece of William Morris fabric. William Morris, who was the writer, craftsman, developer of all the beautiful designs that many of us, you know, still surround ourselves with. 
Shaw said that it was through William Morris that he got started. So he'd been writing novels, but they hadn't been published, but he managed to get one called An Unsocial Socialist published in serial form. And William Morris read it and got in touch with him and invited him to join in the Hammersmith Socialist League and the Pre-Raphaelites, the arts and crafts movement that was meeting there. So Shaw immediately is launched into this amazing group of writers, artists, craftspeople. So this curtain here really symbolises for Shaw, you know, his start with William Morris. And the piano was designed by Walter Cave, who is Secretary of the Arts and Crafts Workers Union. And Shaw was self-taught on the piano. It was a real source of nourishment throughout his life. And several visitors would comment on the fact that he would, you know, sing the ring cycle from one end to, to the other, <laughs> singing all the parts, playing along. And, you know, what a merry sort of house it was full of music. So this is the dining room. It's not grand, it's very simple, an oak table and four very straightforward chairs. A radio, a gramophone, a little sofa, a few pictures. But it was an absolute hothouse for fun and frivolity and discussion. Yes, ideas, concepts, plans, projects. So it's easy to imagine here Lawrence of Arabia sitting at the table and absolute Cherry Garrard, who went to the pole with Scott, sitting around talking about art, exploration, you know, so many different things, but you can imagine the kind of atmosphere that there was in this room. You can see that we've got some very interesting characters on the mantelpiece. Gandhi there at the beginning, who sets a good tone because, of course, he was like peaceful resistance. The next is Dajinsky, one of the earliest revolutionaries who ends up with a much, very unsavoury job as chief of police in the Soviet Union. Lenin and then Stalin. Shaw truly believed in socialism as the way to make the world a better place, as did many of the intellectual elite at the time. On the right is his birthplace in Sing Street in Dublin. And you'll recognise with whiskers on the right is old Ibsen. Shaw championed Ibsen's work because he was the first writer who put the personal on the stage. And the whole issue of the new women and women's rights that Shaw was, that's what he was writing about in Pygmalion, well, in all his plays, but Pygmalion perhaps the most well-known. Pygmalion was about the flower girl who was selling flowers outside Covent Garden. She was there when the opera turned out and the very rich gentry were waiting for taxis to go home. When the professor of phonetics, Higgins, overhears her and thinks her accent wonderful and makes his notes about it and then realises that there's another phonetics expert standing right next to him and they have the bet that they will pass her off as a duchess yeah, within six months. It's absolutely hilarious. He wrote that play here. After Shaw had died, that was made into the musical My Fair Lady, which um, still is still performed all over the world today. And in this box over here, if you'd like to put some gloves on, you can unwrap this for us. My goodness. An Oscar. For writing screenplay of Pygmalion. And it looks quite worn, as if it was... 
<laughs> well, he used it as a doorstop. <laughs> of course, sure had little time for such nonsense. Yes, yes. Let's go upstairs and have a look at his bedroom. What we have here is Shaw's bedroom and here's Charlotte's bedroom next door. I mean, that does say something about their married life and their relationship. It certainly suggested that the marriage wasn't consummated. It was more about work and about the joining together of two energies to create something really big and important that would change the world. Where Charlotte was a suffragist, a great benefactor and supporter of the arts and was a very talented and busy and gifted woman in her, in her own right. Yes, absolutely, she was. The Shaw Library at London School of Economics, for example, is Charlotte Shaw's library. It's not Bernard Shaw's. So we can see her influence all over the place. But, yes, she very much was the gatekeeper, in a sense, while she was here to keep people away from Shaw, you know, looking at who was getting close to him. And then she also looked at writing out and typing up some of his scripts, helping with his office work and, and, and things like that, really, yeah. But they spoke a lot, you know, they were very close, you can see that. OK, so we're now in the storeroom, and here we've got this wonderful birthday book which contains handwritten messages to Shaw. I'm looking for Einstein, he's in here somewhere. It's an inch and a half thick with letters from some of the great... I mean, some of the truly great people, not only of the era, but of, oh, yeah. but of the modern period, really. Absolutely. I mean, culminating with one from Albert Einstein. Okay. He had a huge influence. You've opened up a beautiful, I think it's a cylinder box, and there we have it, a sort of full-scap-sized, leather-bound book with the um, initials BS in the front, beautifully tooled. Blue leather with gold on it. My goodness, you've opened it. George Bernard Shaw, 1925. There it is, the Nobel Prize for Literature. This was for his huge body of work. It says in there that it has great humanity, but also it's infused throughout with great poetic beauty. Oh, what a wonderful tour of the house. And we've come out through a sort of back door from the kitchen onto a lawn. Shaw wanted his house to be left as a living shrine and one of the ways we do that is through having outdoor theatre here. So in the background you can hear the actors prepping to give their performance. Come right down to the keep if you like. That will be a declaration of independence with a vengeance. I'm Jonas, Jonas Kem. I perform at Shaw's Corner every year for the past ten years. Stand in my father's place by his own wish. Nobody could say a word against our travelling together. Hi, I'm Lainey Shaw, I'm an actor. How lovely to have two actors here performing at Shaw's Corner, the place where he wrote a lot of these words. What's it, what does it feel like for you? Oh, it's lovely, it's really, it's such a beautiful place. And to read his words and to, to know that this is where he created them. Coming on stage through the porch here onto the terrace when you're performing in a play is always quite... Daunting because Gandhi and all manner of people have walked through that door there. So you're following in the footsteps of giants and then you're coming on to perform the lines that he wrote upstairs or in there. And you often feel like his spirit might be watching you. So you really feel the pressure to have a good performance when you're performing at Shaw's Corner. It's a big responsibility you have as an actor in getting into the 
character. How do you go about doing that with Shaw? What's peculiar to Shaw's characters that you found? Oh, they're so varied. Yeah. And, and I think that's what's wonderful. Also, Shaw often will give you a massive description, a physical description. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and uh, yeah, His stage directions are something to be seen. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> pages and pages so. of description. The audience are very receptive. Every year I've been doing it here and they, they love it more and more, even the obscure ones that they've never heard of because he's always relevant. We did The Millionaires a good few years ago, right in the middle of the banking crisis. Ooh, and one of the lines that opened Act 2, never put your money in a bank, to which the audience laughed for about five minutes. We had to really wait for them to calm down. And that happened every time in a short place, something can be picked at that's relevant to today. OK, let's walk down to the writing hut then. This was a space where he'd come to every morning to work. Every morning that he was here, that is. Sometimes they'd call it London, so if people came to the house to talk to him, they could say he was in London. Oh, my word, look at that. Look at that. Very simple. I mean, it's basically a little potting shed. I mean, it can only be about six feet square. Painted black with two little windows in the front and a glazed door. And inside I can see the most magnificent (laughs) typewriter. So it does look very simple, doesn't it? But it's got a bit of a secret. Perhaps you'd like to push at the end. Are you serious? Oh, I'm serious. Push Push hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's turning. A pivoted writing hut. Look at that. So you could line it up with with the sunshine. (laughs) I need one of these. I must have one of these. It's a garden shed spinning (laughs) on a little turntable. That is just wonderful. Genius. I can imagine him secreting himself away. And this is where most of his creative work was done when he was here. When he died, his ashes were mixed with Charlotte's and they're scattered all around the garden, around right in her. So he and his wife have actually become part of this place. Yes, they are indeed. Now, Shaw said, life's no brief candle for me. It's a sort of splendid torch that I've got hold of for the moment and I want to make it burn as bright as it can for I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. The harder the work, the more I live. And he wanted to leave a lasting legacy and he wanted to change the world. Many people have spoken and, you know, written about the inequalities of the way the world is, but, you know, Shaw made everybody laugh at the same time. He was very straight-speaking. He said things with humour that perhaps he would not have got away with if it had been without humour. How long have you lived? Oh, how wretched I am! Oh. And oh, how happy I am! Oh, don't be so selfish! Oh. Yes, I deserve that. During his lifetime, he talked with the National Trust about the possibility... I know he was a member of the National Trust with Charlotte. Oh, yes. uh, But he talked about the possibility of giving the house after his death to the Trust for for Preservation in Perpetuity. Oh, yes, indeed. In 1943, so seven years before he died, you know, he approached the Trust and, you know, talked about how it was going to look and what else he would bring up from London. And, yeah, I was very happy for them to have it.
And that was where we left things in 2017. Shaw's Corner was the first podcast episode I made for the National Trust, so catching up with this property will be a real treat. So let's fire up Zoom and take a trip down memory lane. Hello. I don't believe we've we've met before. I'm Rebecca Whitmore. I'm the current house manager here at Shaw's Corner. Oh, OK. So, so how long have you been at the property? I joined as the house steward in October of 2017. So does that mean you were working at the property when I was recording the original podcast? Yes. I was probably outside greeting visitors or tucked in a room somewhere. And I was working with Sue Morgan, the old house manager who you met said the Nobel Prize was like throwing a life belt to a swimmer who'd already reached the shore. And of course, that was correct. Unfortunately, Sue passed away in 2019, not that long after you were last here. Oh, I just, I'm very sad to hear that. Sue was a blazing torch, as Shaw might put it. She gave me a stunning tour. She put Shaw into three dimensions. Sue's job was very much the overview of the direction that the property would have been going in. The house manager role is the lens through which the visitors see the house. When a visitor comes into the house, it can look as if nothing has changed between Shaw's death in 1950 and today. However, that's strictly not true. Shaw's Corner has had a couple of different iterations. It's gone from being a visitor attraction with just three rooms downstairs open to then being turned into residential flats with tenants. When that happened, all the furniture had to be put into storage. And then, again, ideas change and it came back as a visitor attraction. One of Sue Morgan's greatest strengths was her determination. Sue was determined to find out exactly where a lot of the objects came from and how they connected to Shaw as the person, Shaw as a writer, to try and make as authentic a visit as possible. Sue took a couple of trips across to America to the University of Austin, Texas, where Charlotte's, who was Bernard Shaw's wife, a lot of her documents ended up there. All the sorts of things that we might throw away in our own lives, but can actually give us the detail of the day-to-day running of the house and the way that they built Shaw's Corner to be what it is today. Sue, at her core, was a Shaw scholar. She was part of the Shaw Society and the International Shaw Society. Taking over from someone as well-established as Sue must have been daunting. But I guess taking on the role of house manager in 2021 came with a number of daunting tasks. There definitely wasn't much time to be phased. I joined Shaw's Corner as the house manager at the beginning of 2021, still in full pandemic mode. It's quite jarring having the property empty. Were there any positives that came of the uh, property being closed? So light is one of the biggest damages to historical objects. They bleach wood, um, they bleach paintings, textiles. They can literally almost burn a hole through a carpet if left in direct sunlight. So we have caps on how much light we're allowed in certain rooms. So being closed for years meant that we've not damaged anything from light damage this year. We don't have to have the blinds open. 
On the flip side, it's nice and dark and quiet, which is a perfect breeding ground for moth. Somewhere dark, somewhere nice and warm, and just a little bit humid so that there's some water. And also somewhere nice and dusty so they've got nice yummy things to eat. They eat through the textile. They're getting nutrients from the dyes. They especially like pre-chemical red dyes. Um, what they're made of is other dead insects, which gives them an extra boost of nutrients. The particular type of moth that we have is called Webbing's Clothes Moth. The worst thing about Webbing's Clothes Moth is they make these little cocoons out of this really sticky sort of web stuff and they find like a nice little dark crease in a fabric and then they make a cocoon and they weave their cocoon almost into the fibres of the carpet and they're incredibly difficult to get off without ripping giant holes in your textile. We have had damage on carpets as well as a dressing gown of Shaw's which is hanging up. It can affect any type of textile. So the method that we have chosen at Shaw's Corner for this is the freeze-thaw method. We have a special low-suction vacuum cleaner which start to get up some of the webs, larvae or dead moth that is already on the carpet. Then we wrap them up as airtight as we can make them. And then we freeze everything at minimum minus 20 for 48 hours. Then we take it out of the freezer for another 48 hours, let it thaw, and then we put it back in the freezer again for another 48 hours. And the strong fluctuation, freezing and thawing and freezing and thawing, helps to eradicate um, the pest. So none of the rooms have carpets in them at the moment. So the, the good thing about that is that we're now able to invite our visitors further into the room to get a brand new perspective. So if we take the drawing room, for example, you could go in maybe two foot and you'd always be looking at the room from the perspective of the doorway and then looking sort of diagonally across at everything. And by not having a carpet what we've been able to do is extend the visitor route so that you can walk down the length of the room into the centre of the room. In the drawing room, there is this gorgeous portrait of Charlotte over the top of the fireplace. It was one of Shaw's favourite pieces. You can now look square on to the fireplace and to Charlotte's portrait above it. So it gives you a completely different perspective you are physically in the middle of the room looking at things in the same way that Shaw might have done and see the tiny little smile that Charlotte has in her portrait and the little salamander that's running up the wall on one side. I really do hope people enjoy seeing things from that perspective because it's incredible. I love it. do hope you've enjoyed this revisited episode of the National Trust podcast. Please remember, if you do plan to visit any of our properties at the current time, do check the opening times and arrangements before making a visit. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, remember the National Trust has a huge resource of audio programmes, which you can find at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. We'll be back with another episode soon. So from me, James Grasby, goodbye. Goodbye.